will turn now to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, for our New Testament reading from the New Testament sermon. That's chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Hear the reading of the word of God, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. During this time of year, many Christians choose to celebrate and remember the advent of Christ, singing songs like we heard this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel that mourns in holy exile here until the Son of God appears. And what good news the Son of God has appeared. The wonderful reality illustrated by these songs and Christmas narratives is that God humbled himself. He condescended to our level. The infinite truly became infant. The maker became man. The one who we've been hearing about in Job who last week cried out to Job and said, where were you when I laid the foundations to the world, when I put boundaries on the unruly child that is the sea? It is this God that became incarnate as a man, the incomprehensible. After a thousand years of waiting for the promised Messiah, the promised Emmanuel, promised God with us, Christ came, born of the Virgin Mary. And in doing so, God was with his people, and he was like his people. But our focus this evening is more so on the second advent of Christ. The line that we confess this morning from the Nicene Creed, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This second coming of Christ in many ways mirrors and kind of flips the first coming. In the first one, Christ came with meekness, came without pomp or fanfare, came to a hodunk town as a socially insignificant child with death pursuing him. Yet in the second, he comes in the sight of all, with the trumpet, a host of angelic armies, 
meeting his bride in the air as the true Davidic king to judge and to rule and reign forever and ever and ever and ever. So Revelation 21 here is describing the glorious new creation, this new creation that awaits for those in Christ, the assurance that we have of its certainty, its blessings for us as his bride, and also a warning, a warning of eternal death for those who are not in Christ. Our passage then reveals that not only did Christ come to be with us and come to be like us as man, but at his second coming and the consummation that we look forward to in the future glory, we will be with him and we will be made like him. This is what the picture, the scripture, excuse me, are revealing to us then. A, a picture, a snapshot of what we look forward to. This new creation. Where at the incarnation and first advent of Christ, he inaugurated his kingdom. We look towards its consummation. The day that Christ returns again, his second advent, and it will be a busy one. For we know that we will be raised. We will be given new glorified bodies. We will be vindicated, rewarded. Satan and his legions will be forever cast down. The unrighteous judged. And then the full consummation of new heavens and earth will come to pass as the old passes away. And that is the scene, really, that we're jumping into here in chapter 21, where John is describing the new creation that we, we long for. So to be clear, this section uh, is referring not to us now, nor to the saints in heaven, as most of Revelation is, but really to what we look forward to as the entire bride of Christ and all of creation, where God makes all things new. The one-day consummation. So let's begin in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. John is seeing the new heaven and new earth, a new cosmos entirely. Why? Well, because the first had passed away. Here John is saying that there is a new heaven and a new earth, and what he does not mean is the way you or I might speak of a new pair of work boots. You know, we have our old pair, we've, we've worn in, we've worn through. They're whole, we, in the non-biblical sense, maybe we donate them, we throw them out, and we get a new pair of boots to replace our old pair. No, rather, when he says new here, what he's getting at is, is something more referring to, to quality. Um, where the first heaven and the first earth, that which we dwell on now, are temporary, they are um, impermanent, if you will. The second, the new creation, the new heavens and earth that we look forward to will be permanent. They will be enduring and everlasting. It's really pointing to a radically changed creation. You know, we dare not look simply at this new heaven and new earth that he sees as simply a an ethical transformation, if you will, that, oh, it'll be just like what we have now, except without the sin, uh, without the enemy. Uh, certainly those things are true, but really what this is getting at is, is much, much more. Uh, it is really a radical type of newness, yet it's similar. In the same way that we and our bodies will be renewed, we will be changed uh, after our death, uh, or if he comes back before you die, we will be radically different, yet we still will be us. We still will be recognizable. And in the same way, the earth will be radically changed. Maybe it goes to the destruction of death, but it still will be, in some way, shape, or form, recognizable. The old will pass away, all that is former will go, and the new everlasting creation that John is talking about here will be consummated. Apparently, though, included in the old and the former that is passing away 
is every hope I've ever had for surfing in heaven. For John describes that the sea was no more. But I'm going to be honest, I kind of wonder, what did the sea do to deserve such discrimination, to be called out so specifically? Because if we go back to Genesis, when God created all things, it was certainly part of what he said is very good. It is certainly, if you go down to La Jolla Shores, you can look and see as it portrays the eternal power and the divine nature of God. Well, throughout Scripture, the sea, the ocean, is a place described often as like the origin of evil. Or as we heard from Revelation 31 this morning when Mike was preaching, where the beast comes out of the sea. Or in general, just representing chaos and evil, or even the place of the dead. So why does John note its absence here? Why does he point out that the sea is missing? Well, because he's describing this new creation. A new creation, whereas he mentions in verse 4, God promises, declares that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. A new creation where death will be no more. No mourning, no crying, no pain, no toil, no curse, no enemy, no evil, no accuser at every turn. No, our God who who led the Israel who led Israel through the Red Sea and judged Egypt, who led us to the waters in the sacrament of baptism, will bring about all things as and for good. So while our church age that we live in, and whatever period that Satan is loosed for, um, while the bride of Christ will face tribulation, what we look forward to in this new creation, what we look forward to when there is no sea, is this point of no death, no struggle. There is no threat of tribulation whatsoever for the people of God. Any concept of it that you see of sea, even in Revelation or in prophecy, is usually one of stillness, like glass or crystal. So I really don't know if there will be surfing in the new heavens and the new earth, but I do know that there will be zero threat, absolutely no threat for the covenant people of God for tribulation. That will be over, and that is fantastic, fantastic news. But John continues. He doesn't stop there just describing the new heavens and new earth and the sea. But he describes what he sees, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God. And lo and behold, it is as a prepared bride, adorned for her husband on their wedding day. The prophet Isaiah refers to Jerusalem as a holy city. So it's a little surprise here that as we think of John depicting the new creation, we hear of a new Jerusalem. Though I don't think John is describing some geographical piece of land As we think often to Jerusalem, this place in Palestine, rather, he's describing something much greater, something much more intimate than a piece of land. For we, the very people of God, the bride of Christ, are described as living stones. Living stones that are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, according to the epistle of Peter. We are described like this holy city. At times, as the bride of Christ, adorning herself with fine linen, bright and pure, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. Earlier, John even writes, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. At the end time glorification, we, as the bride of Christ, the full number of the elect that God has been gathering for to himself for a millennia, millennias, will be in relationship and perfect fellowship with our God. This is the figurative picture 
and view of New Jerusalem that it is drawing out here, one of communal relationship, one of communal relationship that was inaugurated and has been seen throughout the ages, throughout true Israel in the Old Testament and throughout the church in the New Testament, is communion with our Father, with our Savior, with our Lord, is communion with God, where we will be his people and he will be our God. And this intimate fellowship here is depicted with more than just that, for even then the voice from the throne speaks and says that God's dwelling place is with man. That God will dwell with us. We will be his and he will be our God. I would wager that if you open to a random page in your Bible right now, within 30 pages or so, you could probably find that refrain echoed somewhere. It's a constant refrain. I will be their God, they will be my people. Really, one of the central threads and echoes throughout all of Scripture, and even the grand plan of redemption itself, even in the garden, before the fall ever occurred, before redemption was needed, we had an eschatological end. We had an end that was communion with our God. That was the goal. Sure, after the fall, we see it promise. The Messiah would come, the first advent of Christ. The Messiah would come, promised, promised again, again, and again, I will be your God, you will be my people. To Abraham, throughout the prophets, over and over, we see this repeated, God with us, Emmanuel. In the wilderness, God had Emmanuel. God had this promise actualized, in a sense, with the tabernacle. God with them, but in order to dwell with his sinful people, which they were and we are, there were many, many, many sacrificial and purity rituals and laws and systems to be put into place. And even then, God's presence was still surrounded by barrier after barrier after barrier. And then at the incarnation, John, the same John writing Revelation here, says that Christ put on flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, that he tabernacled among us. God with us. At Pentecost, the exalted Christ sends his Holy Spirit who dwells among us and indwells us. Yet, there is something greater. But yet, we truly do have, right now, God with us. We truly are his and he is ours right now, really and truly, by the Holy Spirit indwelling in you if you profess Christ, by your partaking of the sacraments, by participating in heavenly worship on the Sabbath, Yet when we think of the new heavens and the new earth, when they are consummated, there we will see truly the beatific vision. There we will see, we will behold God. Dwell with him, him with us. He like us in flesh, just as Christ is, and us like him, sanctified, glorified, and conformed to the image of Christ. This is the image of new creation that Paul, excuse me, John is painting for us. It's perfect, unthreatened, consummate presence and relationship between a creature and its creator. It's a glorious picture. What a good picture. But it sounds way, way too good to be true. No death, no pain, no torment, no misery, no toil, no enemy, no accuser. Perfect communion, absent of sin, and eschatological glory forever and ever and eternity. And as if to anticipate the very objection that sounds way too good to be true. Scripture says, he who is seated on the throne speaks. He who is seated on the throne speaks and gives us assurance. Everywhere except in chapter 1, it's usually a voice from the throne speaks, or maybe an angel, or even John. But here, 
It is undeniable. It's unquestionable who is speaking. It's no angel. It is not John. It is no created being. It is the creator himself. It is the one who sits on the throne who speaks and says, Behold, I am making all things new. Here he echoes again, Isaiah 65 and 43. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Behold, I make new things. God himself from the throne declares that what had begun to be fulfilled with Christ's death and his resurrection are now being completed. All of his people, along with the heavens and the earth itself, being transformed in new creation. All things new. All things new, imperishable, incorruptible, permanent. Here we are assured that it is the one seated on the throne that will bring about this glorious day. But thankfully, it doesn't even stop there. Scriptures go on to say that from the throne God said, also he said, write these this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God instructed John to write this down for our assurance. To write this down as a promise, a pledge. The word of the Lord spoken by God from his throne is trustworthy and true. Because for God, speaking and doing are really the same thing. He cannot utter a lie. There's no shadow in him. What promise could you accuse him of breaking or forgetting? What word has he spoken that has not or will not come true? You want to know with this truly unimaginable picture of new creation, indescribable glory, what it re- what, that it really is in store for us? You want something to hang your proverbial hat on? God himself declares, my word is trustworthy, my word is true. His very character The character of the speaker grounds every bit of our confidence, every bit of our hope, every bit of our assurance that this will come to pass. But it is not only his immutable, his unchangeable character, but his omnipotence, his infinitude, that he, his eternality, his immensity, his self-sufficiency, all of God's attributes. For God declares from the throne of all things, it is done. I am the Alpha. In the Omega, the beginning and the end, the new creation, it is done. Redemption of my people, done. All that I have prophesied throughout Scripture over thousands of years, over thousands and thousands of miles of landscapes, countless lives, done. Judgment of my enemies, done. When Christ cried out from the cross, it is finished. He set the whole new creation in motion, and then it will be complete. Just as when Christ, or excuse me, just as when God made the first creation and rested in Genesis, so then the new creation itself will be done in an everlasting rest, everlasting eternal Sabbath. For God is the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This title, this epitaph really is pointing not just to its endpoints, not just to the beginning and not just to the end, not just to creation and its consummation. To everything, God is completely, totally, utterly sovereign over all of human history. He's sovereign over time itself. He was sovereign over the beginning in Genesis. He's been sovereign, he was and is sovereign over these middle bits that we live in. And he'll be sovereign over the end and the consummation. 
Beloved bride of Christ, this is the one who promises to bring the glorious picture of new creation to pass. The one who promises to wipe the tears from your face. Like a caring spouse when you are in distress. This is the one who promises no pain. Who promises communion. If your confidence was proportionate to the power of the one who made the promise, your confidence would be just as light itself. Completely unwavering. For it is as good as if it has already happened in God. But again, God does not stop there, but he continues then to describe his lovely bride and her blessings. For he says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Isaiah 55 sounds pretty similar. It's probably echoing in the back of some of your minds. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money without price. What is it then to thirst? What is it to be described as a thirsty bride? Well, for once, our modern slang actually kind of helps us here. It helps draw out the point. In modern slang, if someone's described as thirsty, it's really encoding and pointing to the fact that they're just absolutely desperate. They are too eager in wanting something, usually in reference to romantic relationships. And in a sense, I think it helps us because it's the same metaphor scripture is using in a way. God's not saying if, if you're really, really dehydrated and you need a cool sip of water on a hot day, come and I'll, I'll give you a sip. No, rather what he's saying is come. You who are desperate in your need, you who are too eager, you who recognize that you need, and I will give without payment. I will give without price. I will give without cost. That is, God's saying that the gift of water is free. It is a gift, unearned. Yet again, it is not just a cold drink of water. It is the water of life. As he penned this, I'm sure John was recalling back to when he penned his gospel under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because there's a phrase, if, if you recall, when Christ encounters the woman at the well in John 4, he says to the woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. This is the water that, that wells up inside of you into eternal life. The gift of God to those who are desperate. To those who come to receive an unpurchased, unearned, unmerited gift. Eternal life. God himself. New creation, eternity with him. Yet it is not only as a thirsty bride that we are depicted, but a conquering one. The one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is also echoing Isaiah 55, where later in the same passage, Isaiah writes that I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Or Second Samuel, where he says, I will be a father to him, and he a son to me, as he's speaking of the Davidic prophecy. A conquering bride, then, is the bride who is set to inherit and be the son of God. They rule and reign with the Davidic king, with Christ who is coming as king, no longer as infant. Though it mixes metaphors a bit of a, a conquering bride and a son of God, it really makes perfect sense. Those who are to inherit the promises of eternal life, well, they are those who persevere until the end. They are those who overcome 
They are those who are conquerors, not giving in to the trials, the tribulations, the temptations of this life, but running the race faithfully until the finish line. The conquering person is the one who, in the face of persecution, in the face of mockery, in the face of temptation, to run away from God, they are preserved by God, and they persevere until the end. Consider Romans 8. For you, excuse me, for your sake, we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep for the slot to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. To conquer is to endure, to endure trials and sufferings, and then to inherit all the blessings of God, all the blessings of the new creation, blessed communion with God as a son of God, an heir and a co-heir with Christ. Christ is clearly the unique son of God in the Trinity, yet his beloved bride, thirsty and conquering, inherits as only sons do, and then partakes in this blessed promise of Emmanuel, partakes in the promise that God will be with us and we will be with him, the heart of our new creation hope. Yet, this passage does not end in verse 7, but it goes on. The second advent of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the final day in the new creation is not joy and hope for all. Or sorry, everything but the new creation is not joy and hope for all. Uh, For Christ declares that, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire, which is the second death. It's a hard verse, and it is a warning to us in the covenant community and a judgment for the unbeliever. God bookends his list here with cowardly. On the other end, all liars. Most of Revelation is really focused on, as Mike mentioned this morning, suffering and persecution and enduring and knowing the hope that is before us and our hope in Christ. So it's really not surprising that at the center and forefront of this description, this list, are those who turn their back on Christ, are those who depart from us but were really not among us, or depart from us but were really not one of us, those who face threat and persecution and depart from the visible covenant community. For them, for those who do not profess Christ, this passage is this judgment. This passage warns that the inheritance that they will receive Their portion is quite different than those who are in and united to Christ. While the sons of God have eternal life, have new creation, the sons of Satan will have as their portion forever a lake that burns with fire and with sulfur. This figurative picture of a burning lake, it strikes fear in some ways. It's hard. But it portrays that there will be some real kind of conscious suffering, even outside of just the fact that they will be removed from relationship with God. Those who are apart from Christ, well, they'll die once in the body, but then they will enter a second death, which is just as permanent as the new creation itself. So as we conclude, I want to stress 
a few things. Especially regarding this, this last verse in verse 8. If, if you're here and you do not profess Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you do not know, believe, and trust in Christ, it's a simple call. Repent and believe. It is a simple call from Isaiah. Come, you who are thirsty. Come without money, without price. That same offer is extended to you now in this very moment, this very day. If the Holy Spirit has made you aware of your desperate, desperate need, I can assure you with complete confidence there is only one place to go to find water. Come to the cross of Christ. Come to the wellspring of eternal life. For today is the day of salvation. Our King can return at any moment. Beloved saints, you truly are the bride of Christ. You are adorned for your coming bridegroom. Never forget that. Never forget that you also are called thirsty. You're called conquering. If you are united to Christ, your identity then is sonship, as one who inherits, as one who is satisfied by the living water, who drinks and never thirsts again, as one who conquers and endures the trials and tribulations that come. God will, beloved, preserve you until this glorious day. He has never lost a sheep. The new creation that you now get to partake in in part we will get to partake of in its completion God has declared that himself from the throne he has declared it will happen so as we await bodily death or we await the second advent of Christ whichever comes first know that there will be a day when there is no tears all of our mourning ends all of our pain ends and our perpetual fight with sin and Satan, over. We will live in uncontested communion with our victorious Christ. Our conquering king who is returning. For the dwelling place of God is with man. He will be our God. We will be his people. This glorious truth is the reason why in a moment we will sing Come thou long-expected Jesus is the reason why we rejoice and celebrate the birth of Christ and his first advent, his first coming. It's the reason that we long for his second. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you, long for his return. Cry out in your hearts and prayers, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, mighty King, come. Make all things new, set all things right. As John ends his book of Revelation in chapter 22, verses 22, 20 through 21, I'll close this evening. Speaking of Christ, he writes, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let us uh, let's pray.